A couple of months ago, I was reading an article on the Spectator website by today's guest, the one and only Rory Sutherland, all about how much he loves YouTube connected TV and thinks it does a job that other media fails to do, which is cater to people like himself who are on the spectrum, or as Rory says, the outliers. Now, I'm sure none of you have escaped the growing discourse and awareness around neurodivergence in the last 12 months, especially on LinkedIn and as it relates to employees and ways of working. And we get into that in this episode, but we also look at ways that the neurodivergent consumer should be approached and catered for in multiple areas across advertising, media, the physical environment, and of course, emerging tech like social media. Yeah, Rory's way of thinking is so different to anyone I've ever spoken to before and almost makes you question everything that you see in the model world around you and its purpose for being there. In this episode, we cover why the modern day office is no longer fit for purpose in the modern era, how thinking illogically sets you apart from everyone else and what brands can do on social to cater to the neurodivergent population. Well, Rory, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm really excited to get into this chat. We have a format here on Social Minds where we kick off with one huge question. And this week, the one for you is, how should we advertise to and engage neurodivergent consumers? It's a very interesting question. And the first question we need is how you identify them and or whether they self-identify as such. One of the areas where, by the way, I'd like to also give some thought, is not just neurodivergence, as is often meant, which is people on, let's say, the spectrum of some kind, which is important in itself, but also treating the elderly, I think, as fundamentally different, because they're, if anything, a more numerous group, and they're also incredibly neglected in a tech environment, which tends to be designed by people aged 25 and on a sort of 65-inch monitor, okay? So what I would say is just as, you know, there's a lot of talk about cultural diversity, I think the conversation about neurodiversity needs to go a lot broader. And uh, to take one example, my father's 92. Now, the one thing I won't do is criticise my father for having... Um, being a Luddite or a late adopter with the internet in that, you know, he was selling books on Amazon, for example, into his 80s. But he's now reached a point, as he admits, where he said, you know, something like resetting your password simply becomes a major hassle. You know, it, you know, it used to be mm-hmm. something he'd do fairly routinely. And the whole question of, for example, passwords is just too painful, as he said, at the age of 93. You know, he's held out from becoming what you might call grumpy old man syndrome fairly well. And I'm fairly sympathetic (laughs) that we're going to have a large number of people, often people, you know, with mobility issues too, for whom this technology is disproportionately important. I mean, interestingly, going back to the question of neurodivergence as we generally talk about it, but I would would say that ageing needs to be part of the uh, neurodiversity debate. Um, because undoubtedly, uh, you know, our mental faculties and, I mean, you know, there, there are physical faculties as well. For example, when your skin dries, uh, touchscreens become less effective for the old. If you've seen old people struggling with the interface at British Rail Railways ticket machines, that's part of it, okay? So designing designing a world for everybody 
rather than as we've done, I think, for the last 20 years, we've attempted to design a world, in a sense, for early adopters, for innovators, and for people who want to be cool. I think that's a large part of the next task. I mean, we tend to think of something like online retail as a job that's been done, okay? I think it's a work in progress because as it currently stands, online retail is something which not everybody will happily do and they will only do some of the time. Apart from anything else, I don't know if you notice this, but even you, as I imagine, a fairly heavy user of online solutions of all kinds, mm. when it gets close to Christmas, you actually go to shops. <laughs> and the reason is there's a mental limit to the number of things you can have about to be delivered, both for pra- practical and for cognitive reasons, Yeah. before you start to go insane. Yeah, well, <laughs> certainly did this year because of the uh, delivery yeah. fiasco. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so so it's worth noting that you only you only need to have one element of doubt to drive people back to their default behavior in many cases. Mm. And you're absolutely right. There was a total delivery fiasco with, I think, two two of the major uh, delivery players sort of fell over effectively. And um, also you get to a point, as no one seems to have noticed, which is that if online retail continues its present trajectory, uh, then effectively your house turns into a kind of distribution hub. You know, if your neighbours are also ordering things online to the same extent, I mean, there are whole questions around, you know, the sustainability of this, both environmental sustainability, Mm -hmm. but also road traffic sustainability. One of the areas we need to research more is uh, the attitude to brands among the neurodivergent, because there are various theses that uh, people who are, for example, on the spectrum don't look at brands in the same way that other people do. In other words, whereas most people instinctively have a kind of mimetic view of life, where what something is depends not only on what they think of it, but on what other people think of something. Okay, And this is kind of brands as social imprinting. You know, a BMW is a highly reputable car, which is envied and admired by lots of other people. Therefore, I want a BMW, okay, is a fairly sort of conventional, I think, human form of uh, attaching value to things. I mean, I always notice this myself in that when I go down to, for example, the marina at Cannes, I kind of envy the yacht owners for owning a yacht, even though I myself am severely seasick and would actually have a miserable time if ever I went out in a yacht in anything other than completely placid condition. <laughs> so this this comes down to a whole lot of work on sort of mimetics, which is that uh, you aren't what you are, what you think you are, you are what other people think you are. Mm. Um, and um, it's certainly much, much more potent Uh, in the neurotypical, than we like to think. We actually post-rationalise our decisions as though they were arrived at through a sort of internal, self-interested calculus. But we're much more, I think, um, dedicated to advertising ourselves than we ever like to admit. It's one of those processes about which we're in denial. Now, the interesting argument there is if neurotypical people don't have this particular instinct, uh, it's interesting to research them to see how their brand impressions differ from other people's do neurodivergent people then consume advertising differently and if that's the case how does it impact i mean you have to assume it does how does it impact advertising effectiveness it's an interesting question because one of the things i would perhaps argue is that 
modern fashions in conventional, not digital advertising, have gone further and further away from providing any factual or rational justification for a purchase. Now, David Ogilvy argued that, in a sense, you needed to sell to two people. These aren't his exact words, but that when you were selling, you were selling to two people. You were selling to the consumer's emotional response, which is, do I want this? Okay. Now, without without that um, barrier cleared, you won't get a sell. You can't rationalize someone into buying something they instinctively just don't like very much, which doesn't feel right. But equally, David Ogilvy, I think, believed that the body copy in a print advertisement provided people with the rational material, which he described as an excuse. That, yes, they were happy to act on, you know, their emotions and their emotional predisposition to buy something was essential to the sale. But nevertheless, they then needed to go through the process of post-rationalizing the sale. And the role of body copy was to provide them with the material to say, well, of course, I bought the Aston Martin because of its, you know, 27 cubic meters of boot capacity. Okay, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of bullshitting to ourselves. Uh, you might argue that B2B is also like that very much because you need the emotional predisposition to buy the thing being offered, particularly if it's not something you have to buy. But you also need the what you might call the rational ammunition or the excuse to justify your decision to everybody else. Now, David Ogilvy would say that actually, and, and this probably chimes pretty much with all the latest thinking in anthropology that man is not a man i mean not 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 as a gendered term but humans <laughs> are not a rational species they're a post-rationalizing species and what they do is they act instinctively based on heuristics and instincts and feelings it's the feelings that prompt the behavior but there's then this necessary phase where they say i needed that because Okay. Yeah, we need to justify the behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so it's worth noting that the research into people who are non-neurotypical will probably reveal, I'm guessing here, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it revealed, a different ratio because that you would be less concerned in what other people thought of you. Okay. Now, I mean, the, cl- the classic definition of that might come from the often derogatory phrase anorak in that an anorak is a highly practical form of clothing which does exactly the job you would want a piece of clothing to do if you were being entirely rational about clothing i.e lots of pockets protection from the elements etc etc general comfort and so on but it's generally not very cool and therefore someone who is less sensitized to what you might call the opinion of others or you know general self-advertisement but is more sensitized to practical and rational reasons, is more likely to wear an anorak than, for example, well, I mean, you know, you know, take the opposite extreme, I suppose, um, the editor of Vogue. And so, but I mean, the interesting question, which is that, you know, occasionally people take this, uh, you know, purchase decisions are emotional, which is sort of true, to mean, therefore, all you need to do is cater for the emotional side of the decision. Now, in B2B, that's hopeless because you can't go into a boardroom and say, hmm, you know, I met these people and it just felt right, okay, right? <laughs> Even though that's a major part of the uh, uh, the influence on your decision, you have to then provide a, a, a you know, a post hoc, post rationalization of your emotional decision. Now, the interesting question is, outside B2B and B2C personal decisions, do we at some level need to do that for ourselves? 
you know, in other words, and this gets really complicated. I mean, I would argue, okay, there's a large degree of what you might call people buying the Tesla because of its performance or because it's cool or novel or has dog mode or, you know, uh, you know whatever, whatever, whatever reason, you know, we might want to advance, pretty good car. And then they post-rationalize it on environmental grounds, for example. Yeah. But I would contend that the number of people who bought a, a Tesla on environmental grounds as the prime discriminator is certainly a minority of tesla buyers and if you look mm. at the demography of tesla buyers you'll probably that will probably back that up you can you can see me kind of nodding and smiling here rory one one reason because i've been kind of head down in your book for the last couple of days uh, alchemy fantastic book and these these examples do crop up now and again and i can see myself rewinding it and, and processing them and somewhat post-rationalizing them as well and i think what i've been doing is, is having a look at some of the, the key takeouts from that. And I think what the, the one that resonated with me most is when you wrote, companies like to treat humans as if they all behave in a predictable, rational way, but we don't. There's no such thing as the average customer. Instead, brands should cater to the outliers for better success. Now, I love that quote, and I, I kind of wanted to take it and put a social scope on it, obviously. The, the, there's, a, there's a new book by Helen Edwards, which has only just arrived yesterday. Um, she's yeah. just published it, which is, I think, called from, is it from Margins to Mainstream? But the right. argument is, which I've also advanced, that actually one of the most reliable ways to innovate is to take a niche, mm -hmm. cater to that niche, which is generally underserved, and in many cases, not all, you will find, therefore, that you actually appeal to a far larger, larger audience than the niche for whom the product was initially designed. Because, okay, if you design for the disabled, okay, in a weird way you design for everyone in the sense that we are all di disabled some of the time. And the example I give in my book is, I think it's now mandatory in public buildings for fire regulations and goodness knows what else, that you have door handles, not door knobs. And the reason being that people who through arthritis or through amputation or whatever else have lost the use of their hands can't operate a doorknob um, safely and quickly, but they can operate a door handle with any body part you choose, Okay. We all agree that toilet doors on the way out should be push doors, not pull doors, right? Because that's <laughs> oh, oh, interesting. complete yeah. nonsense. Now, the instinct, the instinct, <laughs> that's a very interesting question. I mean, there's often the issue of slamming people in the face, by the way. Uh, in, in terms of which way doors open, you have to be alert to the fact. Um, uh, there, there's a whole scene in, I think it's double indemnity, or possibly Billy Wilder was driven insane because there's a whole scene where someone hides behind a hotel door, which opens outwards into the corridor. And that drove Billy Wilder absolutely insane in his later life because he said it's just totally implausible. No hotel door opens into the corridor because you get people getting slammed in the face, yeah. opening doors into moving trolleys. You know, your breakfast room service would arrive having had three head-on collisions and so on. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, that's very interesting. That's very question but the, hand, the door handle is interesting because when you think about it anybody carrying two mugs of tea has lost the use of their hands okay yeah. anybody carrying suitcases has lost the use of their hand i'll give you one tip for everybody by the way um when you fly or go through airports uh wear a shirt with a breast pocket cool. and you're gonna go what the hell is he talking about the reason <laughs> is that the breast pocket 
is probably, um, first of all, you don't want to put your passport and your ticket in your back trouser pocket because someone might nick it, okay? The mm. breast pocket is the only pocket in male dress. I can't speak for female dress, but it's the only pocket in male dress which you can reach with both hands. Mm. And therefore, if you've got to reach your passport and your boarding pass and all that other bit of shit, if you've got a breast pocket on your shirt, okay, it doesn't matter which hand you're carrying your bag with, which hand you're trying to open the door with, you can get hold of your passport and check it's there. Whereas an inside jacket pocket, you'd have to be pretty, you know, flexible Nimble. to check what's yeah. in your inside jacket pocket with your left hand. And so, so when you design for the disabled, you generally deliver extra added benefits to audiences far beyond your initially defined target audience. And I might argue that designing for the non-neurotypical or designing things for introverts or asking if you, if you have a hotel, you know, do we have a space for introverts? I don't know if you ever stayed in one of those Schrager hotels in New York, but the Schrager hotel formula seemed to be make the rooms absolutely tiny and then turn the reception area into a, into a kind of party. Okay, mm. which meant that if you're an introvert, you had a choice between either basically exposing yourself uh, to a party where everybody was much more attractive than you, even though you were the paying guest in the hotel, you felt like a second class citizen or sitting in a room that was about, you know, the size of, you know, a closet. When you talk about like spaces, can we talk about online spaces? So something you just touched on there, which I think is a really interesting point, is this idea of like niches and reaching huge communities through small topics or like special interests, which I'd argue is like the the bread and butter of TikTok, where you know there's there's a talk for everything, whether it's like sneaker talk or you know there's there's dozens and dozens of them. Um, but what you'll find is actually like like nearly a million people in each of these like small things and brands are actually able to thrive at scale by you know reaching these smaller places what about that so i mean one of the, yeah one of the joys of globalization there are downsides to it as well by the way you know i think we ought to be honest about this is that even quite you know, i mean i suppose you see it in pornography okay something that was insanely obscure when pornography was a national print pastime okay uh you know you will actually find yourself part of a global community of goat fetishists when you're online <laughs> and so the ability Christ. to cater uh, you know in an economically viable way for for niche tastes is yeah. undoubtedly helped by this uh, you know in many ways i think it's it, it's highly beneficial or in, uh, in i'm not necessarily talking about goat fetishism but i mean <laughs> the, the the fact that actually um what you might call people who are once on the margins now have collective buying power uh, is you know undoubtedly a valuable facet of this new world. You know uh, that that I think is you know quite important. I think it also rings true to what you were saying as well about you know neurodivergent people may not be as typically influenced by um, you know that sort of herd behaviour where everyone wants a BMW so I want one too, but they're very much focused on their own special interests and yeah. purchase to those means. And by the way, there are probably regardless of how you describe someone as neurotypical or not, there are probably categories in which all of us, there are some categories in which some of us tend towards n what you might call non-neurotypical behaviour. Now, at the one extreme, you might say, I mean, Mark Earls, who wrote the book Heard, more or less suggested that most human buying behaviour, uh, at least among the neurotypical, was driven by social proof 
peer pressure. You know, we tend to buy the brand leader because we have a strong heuristic feeling that what everybody else buys is probably pretty good. Not necessarily best, but pretty good. Okay, which is probably true. So not necessarily true in operating systems or in video formats. You know, the argument was always that Betamax was better than VHS. Okay, but nonetheless, it's not a totally infallible kind of rule of thumb. Okay, but even Mark Earls would have admitted there were categories like hemorrhoid cream. Okay, perhaps I don't know. Or the, the, I think there were categories where someone was buying for someone else, for example, where the normal rules broke down. In, now, in Mark Earls's book, there aren't many, but there are some. And it's worth noting that, for example, extreme motorbike fanatics. Okay, let's say um, uh, there will be a group of extreme motorbike fanatics who are absolutely obsessed with um, uh, what you might call the specification over the status. Uh, another group would be a group occasionally called measure baiters in the world of photography, in digital photography, who are obsessed effectively with the uh, numerical specifications of a product much more than its brand or, or uh, you know, the likely sort of reputational questions that other people would ask. And so, yeah, it, um, it is a worth it is a worthwhile. Just as it's worth a hotel saying, uh, "Have we forgotten introverts?" You know, should we have a library in this hotel or a space where people can go mm. and actually mm. uh, reclude themselves? It's perfectly worthwhile, I think, for any brand looking at its communication approach to say, you know, uh, okay, we've provided, you know, we've provided fairly good means in some medium or other for the neurotypical to make a decision but what about people who are you know divergent in some way yeah yeah talking about those spaces obviously that's a physical example if we if we move on to social and look at those spaces and then talk about kind of platforms of spaces so i think youtube's a perfect example of this compared to television which is a bit kind of one size fits all approach i think youtube creators are i mean they're creating something for someone absolutely anywhere everywhere anytime so would you I mean, argue you that youtube is a, I, mean, I mean this is dangerous talk but actually because I'm, I'm i'm one of the tiny minority people and i recommend this to everybody uh, or at least everybody who's curious that you subscribe to youtube premium which is the ad-free version of youtube mm -hmm. yeah it's had like a minimal take-up that hasn't it say, yeah. absolutely yeah, tiny and they don't, because they've got an ad model they don't seem to plug it particularly they just offer it as an option uh, it could be something that they could probably offer with Google One or something. Um, uh, but the interesting thing with YouTube Premium, uh, when you get ad-free YouTube, now it's not plug-free YouTube because quite often the uh, content creators will stop mid-film to talk about this exciting so you're VPN. Wrong. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, never the, nevertheless, when you talk about YouTube Premium, and, when, and, and also when you watch it on TV, you, you end up watching an extraordinary amount of YouTube once you actually get rid of the ads. The rabbit hole, to, huh? to an astonishing degree. Well, I, my argument is that it's a, it's a notch away from becoming Wikipedia with video. In other words, we'll reach a point now just through the massive and exponential accretion of content. Someone told me that there's something, I can't remember what the figure is, but it's insane. It's like, you know, five million hours of content on YouTube with the title How To, Yeah, you know. So in other words, you can spend several lifetimes just watching how-to content on YouTube. Yeah. 
And the extent, you know, then, then you get weird things like what I call virtual tourism, where you have a, you know, a 4K walking tour of Bratislava, where someone just <laughs> wanders around Bratislava in the summer and films it on 4K. I, I did a 5K in Tokyo yesterday. It was brilliant. Loved it. Absolutely. Well, this is the interesting thing, which is I think some people, I don't know whether it's the young or whether it's my generation, we have a kind of false memory of YouTube, which is when it was shit you watched on your phone or on your laptop. Okay. And we tend to assume don't watch it on your massive 4K TV because it'll all be pixelated and wonky. Okay. But actually, YouTube, the vast majority of contemporary content on YouTube now is basically broadcast quality. Yeah. Mm. I mean, okay. You know, let's face it, some of it is not, you know, cut, directed. Some of it is. I mean, some of it, some of it is produced to absolutely, you know, television or even. Uh, you know, Absolutely. filmic levels of, of yeah. directorial quality. But, I mean, nearly all of it, or nearly all of it produced in the last few years, which is probably most of it anyway, is spectacularly high quality in terms of the video and perfectly warrants watching on a TV. And, and I, th- I mean, there are two things that really bother me, okay, which is that marketers emphatically are not talking, they're talking far too much about the metaverse, mm-hmm. which is still at the level of the hypothetical. The fact that COVID gave the world a crash course in how to use video conferencing is highly important in all manner of ways, okay? Mm. My next meeting today is a Zoom call with my bank manager. Now, previously, you had to meet the bank manager either over the phone, which was highly unsatisfactory and artificial, or you had to make an en- or he'd come to your house, or you'd make an engagement to go and meet him, in which case, you know, you'd have to, if not quite, put on a suit. You know, you'd have to make a major effort and clear a large part mm. of the day. The ability to actually use video, person-to-person, peer-to-peer video, is a really big, big deal. And part of that, I think, is, by the way, psychological, which is that there's an element of trust to a video call and there's an element of connection established in a video call which isn't established in a in print or in over the telephone. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I keep arguing to Ogilvy that we should we should be having discussions about how we can reinvent our business through this technology every bit as much as we had discussions when the internet first came along because it's yeah. that important. If you're in a particularly if you're in a service industry. You know, a whole bunch of things in terms of geography, for example, in terms of cost, fundamentally changed by a factor of 10. Yeah. Staying, staying on tech for a second, I'd like to explore examples of, as you call it, psychological tech that could be implemented on social that could make our lives much easier and help with the experience. And I think the Uber example here is brilliant. You know, the issue was waiting for your taxi to come to you with the uncertainty of when it's going to arrive, what Mm. did Uber do? All they do simply is show you where he is and when he's going to come to. Yeah. That's an absolutely magnificent example of psychological. And it's less frustrating, right? Within reason. I'm not suggesting you can use the Uber map to allow cars to turn up an hour and a half after they've been requested, okay? You have to be within a kind of exception margin but whereas before the difference between a 15 and a 25 minute wait might have been a deal breaker because of the degree of uncertainty once you can watch the car approach and reasonably anticipate its arrival time 90 percent of the mental anxiety actually disappears and therefore you've solved the problem at the psychological level now a technological solution to that would of course be let's reduce waiting time by having a predictive algorithm which predicts areas of high demand and sends taxis to them in anticipation mm. yeah 
So it doesn't, it doesn't. And it entirely relies on how, uh, I mean, Uber's had some like an availability issues just for like how many drivers Can't there have been, which impacts it. But on the actual app itself, if the interface is like by any means impacted by the driver's internet or my internet and that car, that little car looks like it's not moving for more than three minutes, I lose my rag. Whereas I never had that problem with a ring up taxi because they say that we'll be here about then. My expectations are the vagueness. But if my expectations are the like specific time and that's like not meeting my expectations, then I it's even more frustrating. Yeah, I mean usually I mean usually you can tell yourself a story as to what's going on. But there are a few cases where the guy's accepted the ride before depositing his existing passenger and therefore scoots off in the wrong direction for a time where you get into <laughs> yeah. a bit of a tizzy. I, I totally accept that. Um, and they, uh, by the way, I hope, you know, they have a whole division of people who keep a really good watching eye on that. You know, in other words, you've created a magical potential for reassurance and confidence. Um, and by the way, I mean, the great advantage, there may even be an advantage to that, because if you go, oh God, this car's not going anywhere, cancel, okay? Well, by cancelling early, to be honest, by cancelling early, you've done a favour to Uber rather than, you know, waiting for the guy to get two marked, you know, two yards yeah. from your door and grabbing a black cab. No, 100%. I think the differences in like our experiences with all these little things, whether it's media or tech, just goes to show like however you define that neurodivergence, it is that spectrum, right? And I think how marketers and brands have been approaching it thus far is that sort of one size fits all, whether it's, you know, accepting that everyone follows, say, social proof or putting neurodivergence into a box and like, for example, doing like sensory hour at Morrison's uh, as one specific type of consumer as well. Like, are, are we missing a trick by sort of trying to categorize when we should be, you know, looking for a broader range of solutions for a broader range of people, as hard of, of a job as that may be? I think when you do segmentation, by the way, there's always there are two approaches to it, which is one of which is we need entirely different set content for every segment which leads you, I think, down a rabbit hole of impossibility and also weirdness in many cases. <laughs> but I think there's a, second, there's a second approach to segmentation, which is the checklist question, which is have we at least adequately catered for people or offered an option for people who are in a different situation? Now, I'll give you, I'll give you one thing that drives me practically nuts, okay? When I order anything from more or less anybody, and this includes Amazon, okay, if I'm paying for delivery... I think I should have some say over who delivers. Now, it strikes me as fundamentally stupid that what obviously happens within e-commerce is the decision uh, as to who delivers a, a parcel is a procurement decision, and it's principally driven by scale and cost reduction, when it mm -hmm. should be driven by customer satisfaction. Now, there's a whole chunk of people, just to give you an idea about the outlier and considering the outlier, okay, there's a whole chunk of people, I don't know how numerous they are, who absolutely hate having anything delivered except by Royal Mail. And the reason for that is they live alone in a house full of antiques in deep countryside, and they don't want a load of strangers knowing where they live or knowing those circumstances, okay? So those people will, will order very little online. They would happily pay three quid to have the thing delivered by the Royal Mail rather than even Amazon, okay? Mm. It strikes me as fundamentally odd. Um, very, very few um, online commerce entities actually say, who would you like to deliver this? The other thing I don't understand, okay, is one of the things that would be absolutely joyous for me. Personally, I prefer locker delivery most of the time. 
But if I can't, one thing that would seem obvious to me is if you can't deliver to me on the day I ordered it, drop it off in my locker. I mean, I found, I found the whole question of locker delivery very interesting because for no end of reasons, environmental sustainability, mere traffic minimization, and just uh, cost reduction. Okay, locker delivery is inordinately superior to delivery to the doorstep. As I've never as tried it. I've never tried good. it. And it's one of those things that the unfamiliarity, but this is me speaking as someone who's probably mildly on the spectrum as well, which sort of you know, brings us back to the central discussion. Because it's unfamiliar to me, it's inherently more complex than what I know, even if what I know is actually the more inconvenient option on paper. This is so fascinating in the field of tech because it brings us to Jeremy Bullmore, the late Jeremy Bullmore's line, which he wrote for Guinness, which was, I've never tried it because I don't like it. Okay, and there is undoubtedly, particularly with network goods, there's this fundamental problem that the two big default behaviors of humans is do what everybody else does and do what I've done before. Okay, Mm -hmm. you know, when we don't want to think very much, we basically fall back on those two defaults. You know, it's kind of like the aperture priority or whatever it is, you know, the automatic mode of your digital camera. You know, let's not fiddle with the settings here, click. Okay. And, you know, it does us fairly well most of the time. But in the field of locker delivery, I'm really interested because there are huge advantages to it in environmental terms, in cost terms. Actually, there are advantages to the consumer as well because you can deliver to a locker much earlier in the morning and much later at night than you can to a residential area, which then makes it possible to have faster delivery. You don't need to be in is, is the main thing for me. You know, but then if you have to go the, to the locker and fiddle so, with it. So there's playoffs either way. <laughs> but if there's enough lockers, around, so there's more lockers around me because I'm central, there's loads around me. My local one's called Ron. No, there's one I've in my names. local co-op and it is only five Brilliant. minutes down the road, but I don't know. Funnily enough, London's an outlier there because if you have a car culture, the locker, generally most people most days drive somewhere and it's no great burden to get in your car and go and pick something up a mile away. I'm not talking about six miles away. Or what's most likely is you choose a locker which is on your daily commute or next to your supermarket and you're going to be going there anyway. Mm. Exactly. And so there are huge advantages to it, potentially. I'm intrigued that Amazon doesn't nudge people towards locker use more than it does. You've actually got to make a fairly conscious effort. I definitely know, because my prime ran out, so I had to have a look at other options. And yeah, it was like six quid to get it delivered to home. It was like a quid to the locker, I thought. Interesting. So they're doing it that way, because I'm a prime customer. And yeah, yeah, interesting. But it's so difficult. I mean, it's so difficult to create. There's a lovely story about this, about a guy who um, invented the shopping trolley. And no one would use the shopping trolley. He spotted the fact that most people's purchases were limited not by what they could spend, but by what they could carry. So he invented the Mm. trolley so they could order more. And no one would use it. And his solution was, bear in mind this was a a retailer in Los Angeles where there are quite a few out-of-work actors. He just hired out-of-work actors to go around the shop with trolleys pretending to shop, and everybody was happy doing it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe what we need for Amazon lockers is just actors queuing to use the locker. I mean, I'm so available if I'm But but it it is really important because I think we tend when a technology te- succeeds. Okay, we tell the story as if no marketing was required. The mobile phone mm-hmm. came along and it was evidently superior to the landline, so everybody got mobile phones. 
that's what it seems when you've actually crossed the chasm and the technology has become mainstream. In fact, what that disguises is a ten to, typically 10 to 15-year period or longer. I mean, things like television, particularly in the US, took ages to go mainstream. And there's this period where people have to be convinced because it requires people, A, to do what most people aren't doing and B, to do something new. And doing something new, regardless of any, any of the other biases at work, is normally more cognitively difficult. So one of my arguments would be, I'll give you an example of this in terms of choice. I think when you have a car, it, this wouldn't apply if you lived in the north of Scotland or North Wales or somewhere. But if you lived in Manchester and you pay your car tax disc, I think your car tax disc should be £100 more. OK, wait for it. But it also should come with £100 of rail vouchers, of non-transferable rail vouchers. So it's fine, mm. having a car's fine, but it's not fine to have a car if you never travel by train, because if you never travel by train, you aren't making an impartial decision about a mode of transport. You know, there, there's a huge swathe of the population who are train rejectors, okay? They just don't touch anything mm. to do with the railways. And those people, if they had to go and see their mate Dave in London from Manchester for one night, they'd drive down, Okay. Mm. Now, all you need people to do is to make four train journeys, maybe three train journeys a year. And now they're familiar with the train to an extent where they make a reasoned and balanced decision between do I drive or do I take the train? Whereas if those same people have never taken the train, the cognitive load of making their first train journey is so great, they're just not going to do it. And so my idea yeah. is you should incentivize to some degree what you might call diversity of consumption. I mean, I, I mean, I'd take it to another extreme, by the way. I would actually. Um, there is a large swathe of people who never take a taxi. Either they're tight. Yeah. I mean, some people are just really, really tight about it. Uh, uh, some really rich people are really, really tight about it, actually. I've always thought, you know, that if everybody took a taxi four times a year, they would now have another part of their transport repertoire and they could sensibly make trade-offs between do I drive, do I take the train, do I take a taxi, yeah. you know, etc. Do I take a bus? Now, if you have a huge amount of driving experience, zero train experience, the consumer decision is not going to be well made. Yeah, and these are sorts of these are sorts of tricks like you, like you say, you know, incentivization and with the the actors and carrying the trolleys, etc. These are sort of tricks that uh, brands could implement. And also the three strap toothpaste is an interesting analogy or story, I guess, where because it's three straps, it looks like it's got triple functions. Yeah. When really it's the yeah. exact same as a, a plain one, right? Well, the second but the second you put stripy toothpaste in your mouth, all the stripes have been eradicated anyway. So it's what what was the point of keeping these three colours separate in the tube, only to mix them up in your mouth? Well, exactly. Yeah, it's a kind of in a, 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 well. It's not totally logical, well, logical in that logical in a way that you can see it, but once it's gone, you know it's exactly the same. But what I was what I was getting onto is: is there anything on social that brands could be doing like that, like these tricks or these sort of psychological kind of um, ways of doing things that could appeal to a wider range of audiences? It's a really interesting question. Um, the answer to that is lots and lots. I mean. You know, one one thing I think that will become critical soon is people asking for subscriptions will have to be explicit about how easy it is to cancel. Mm. Because I'm increasingly reluctant to subscribe to anything else because I see subscription as a kind of furline trap. Yeah, no, 100%. I always think as well with things like this, if you can't cancel whatever it is that you have to 
do, whether it's an appointment, if you can't do that online, if you yes. if you have to ring someone up or speak to someone or tell someone something that's happening, that's an immediate barrier make it as hard for as so possible, many people it? now, which is interesting because like anything that has to be done over the phone now is the opposite of what you were saying about the elderly, Rory. Like yeah. we assume that the elderly have to be able to use an app and it for the same way, if you assume that Gen Z is happy to get on the phone, you're also going to find like that that's extremely, extremely wrong. Oh, we do need to find out a way in which elderly people can park cars which doesn't involve a smartphone app, for example. Oh, yeah, 100%. This is what I call the slight danger with technology, which is it comes along as a compliment, and we like it. It's a bit like the new Coke fallacy, which is, I'm never quite sure how true this is, but it was often argued that when people said they liked new Coke, they were judging it as a variant or as an alternative, a bit like Diet Coke or Coke Zero. They weren't assuming that it was going to replace their old favorite Coke. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what tends to happen with technology, it comes along as a really handy alternative. And you go, yeah, that's good. I can do that now. You know, oh, well, that's, you know, it's quite good. I can actually, you know, read my gas bill um, over email. Okay. And then what happens is obviously for both simplicity and cost saving reasons. It becomes the only alternative. Yeah, one replaces the other. Well, surely they have like a, a period of time where both is offered and they can sort of phase us over. You can pay by coins if you want to at the car park, but you can also pay by app and you can pay by text or something. And then mm-hmm. bit by bit, mm-hmm. what happens is it goes down to one only and you're actually not much better off than you were to begin with. So I think we've got to be really alert mm-hmm. to technology that comes along as a compliment. And then well, I'll give you a classic example of this, okay? We, uh, we need a word in the English language for when this happens. This is, I'm moving into slightly controversial territory here, okay? But the dual income household, where both both genders, both parties in a relationship went out to work, started as an option and became an obligation, okay? Mm-hmm. So when it first started, you know, if you wanted a bit more of a blingy life, you know, both of you were maybe before you had kids, maybe after you had kids, fine. I'm not making a gender comment here, by the way. It didn't have to be that. It tended to be the bloke because that was how you know, the labour economy worked in 1975. But, you know, both parties could go out and work and you could enjoy really quite a large disposable income. Over time, unfortunately, the property market cottoned onto this fact and it is now more or less unaffordable to operate a household on one income. No, 100%. You see what I mean? Which is that, you know, in the very early days, property prices didn't really notice the fact that, the two, you know, the two-income household existed. The two-income household was sufficiently rare, maybe, that it didn't make a big dent on property prices. You know, there was, whatever you think about it, and, and this, again, ignore gender here, okay? That was an enormous loss of discretionary time to society. Because what David Cameron probably called the big society was overwhelmingly, let's say, in the 1960s, an awful lot of that social cohesion and so on was provided by non-working parties to a relationship who had time Mm. to create economic value in other unmeasurable ways other than being paid. The problem is nothing to do with, you know, uh, uh, gender. It's simply the fact that that option of running a one-income household is pretty much out, out of the question. I mean, even a you know a GP would find it difficult, right? Now that's pretty stark contrast from when a GP, uh, his his wife or her husband didn't work, uh, you know, was was still you know living the life of a reasonably prosperous person. Yeah. And so these interesting questions where we're seduced at first 
and we never count the longer-term consequences where what started as an option becomes an obligation. We do need to invent a word for it. I mean, flexible works. It's a trap. I mean, a trap. I mean, I mean, it, 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 furline <laughs> trap is sometimes furline <laughs> trap is sometimes the way it's used, which is it's really attractive. It beckons you in, and then suddenly you realise you can't escape. Mm. But the path dependency of it is kind of interesting. And you know, we probably need to be. I mean, I I don't know in terms of flexible work. I mean, one thing, by the way, we're talking about the neurotypical and the non-neurotypical. I think that the open plan workplace was astonishingly unkind to certain kinds of personality type. Oh, 100%. And I think remote working is is changing that dynamic so much. We have conversations in the office all the time now where we're, we're on to like a hybrid, flexible, like it's suggested three days a week, but we sort of come and go depending on what we've got on. And there are people now, myself included, who were once so used to like the background din of office work then we're stuck inside, you know, between like silent four walls for two years. Now go back to the office environment and find like the slightest noise extremely distracting. Um, so it's completely changed like that approach for lots of people. I was experimenting with flexible work with my team before the pandemic. Mm. And let me explain why, which is um, as a kind of Darwinist, I, I'm a big believer in variation and selection. And if you have yeah. no variation around your pattern of work or your workplace or your working environment, you'll never discover what suits you. Mm-hmm. And so I used to, back in 2019, I used to mandate these. Well, I didn't mandate them, obviously, you know, because, again, individual circumstances. If you've got a really, you know, if your flatmate's into drum and bass, you know, you probably want to come into the office. <laughs> okay, you know, they're individual yeah. circumstances. But... The one, you know, so I didn't mandate it, but I just strongly encouraged people to work from home on Fridays just so some people could discover, actually, this doesn't suit me very well when I want to kind of riff on something. But on the other hand, when I've got a deck to produce or a 2,000-word document to write, David Ogilvy never wrote anything in the office. I mean, he famously declares this in one of his books. He says there are too many distractions. If I've got to write a book, I've got to write body copy, I've got to write anything worthy of note, I go home. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't I think he's he's one of Bezos or one of the big the big kind of tech moguls. Um, they go away for a week every year to a cabin. I in feel the like it's mad that you have to do that to do your and job they, like approach like well though. Like if that's needed, it's just a step back, isn't it? It's just a complete step back and a kind of look over. I think it's view a big and, thing with like Bill Gates has a two week reading holiday. I think he goes away and basically just sits and reads. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that before. I actually depends I mean, on the type of work you're doing. I think, like for for me, like it's writing as well. And if I really need to concentrate or write something like good, I need to be in a silent place to do it. In your dining room. No, whether that's <laughs> at home or like one of the nooks here. Yeah. I mean, so much is tacit, and my argument is you can't really if you've only got an open plan office, you're never going to discover better ways to work. Okay, because discovery depends on variation. I think. Offices need to be completely overhauled since the COVID era. So as Eve touched on there, we're used to kind of working alone because we did it for two years, essentially. Now we've come back into these massive open plan offices and all of a sudden... Well, I didn't like that everywhere. either, by the way. I didn't enjoy the former because no, this but, is just our industry specific, but I think it applies to lots of people. Now offices aren't, need, aren't set up for deep work. No, but you need that space for the collaboration and I think you need you need both. So it's all exactly about this that. variation. Like You're not just catering to different ways of working, like different types of people, different types of jobs. I think that variation is so key. 
my, my first thesis was the office should become kind of bifurcated, which is I described it as half library, half pub. Now, I don't literally mm. mean that, Love that entirely, but you need a place of escape to people who can't find that at home. And also for things like video calling, which, you know, I mean, I have the absurdity at the moment where if I have a video call at four o'clock and I don't have anything for an hour before and I go home to do it because, you know, it, there's a better space. I don't need to book a room. And the text well, that's what I was better. referring to with the, yeah, because we've, we've covered Zoom, but that is the norm now and offices aren't set up for that. We either sit in a meeting room that's designed for 10 people. And there's one person in there on a video call, which then negates... Yes, I know, which feels ludicrous. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. So, I mean, the ideal for me is a two-man uh, phone booth or pod of some sort. And I, I genuinely believe, I, th- I think that would, that would well, solve a lot of issues. The train pods here are so ghastly uncomfortable that nobody uses it's them. Just a little bit small, really. But I think a, two, a two-man booth, I think that would solve, solve a lot of issues. And I think that, that again, is thinking slightly different. I mean, we probably we probably need to reinvent the phone box, actually. On-street Zoom boxes. Yeah, on-street Zoom boxes, yeah. Next to the uh, post boxes. I was going to say, we should, we should do something. Patent everywhere. this or trademark it here so no one is going to copy. Zoom box, <laughs> I love it. It's interesting because this is patently... Uh, how people work varies enormously by individual, both circumstance and temperament. And, uh, you know, there are extroverts, there are introverts, people get their energy from other people, other people being with other people saps their energy. Some people are neurodivergent. Most people, I think, are slightly neurodivergent in one direction or another. Um, You know, I think the average person is actually quite rare. What you can't do is pontificate or legislate for everybody where what's good for the average is good for everybody because it's not that kind of problem where solving for the average solves for nobody, in fact. And I think, therefore, what you did need was experimentation. And the one thing that struck me as utterly weird is when Zoom was invented, okay, here we finally had something which was a non-shit form of video conferencing, okay? It basically did the job. And nobody sat down and, until there was a bloody pandemic. No one sat down and said, well, what, what, what you know, yeah. how can we use this to advantage? Should we rethink how we do things around this technology? And the problem, I, I think, if was it would have happened regardless. No, it would have happened. It would have happened regardless. It would have taken 10 or 15 years would be my guess. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Know, okay, let's be honest. Okay, it was already happening a bit in that mm. typically more senior or entrenched people worked from home on Fridays. I'll tell you a story about this. The Zoom marketing director came to see us in 2019. And my basic suggestion was you need to build on existing success. So you need effectively the message, thank Zoom, it's Friday. And you need <laughs> people who actually work remotely on Fridays from home on Fridays to slightly come out about it. Because it was a bit don't ask, don't tell. A hell of a lot of people work from home, but they never said so officially. No, definitely. You can never see a need outside of um, speaking globally. And, so, and and actually, of course, you know, I mean, what people very rapidly noticed is if you have a Zoom day and you don't have to commute, you actually gain more than two hours a day. I mean, London, the commute is going to be about an hour. You've also got to factor in mm. all the kind of getting dressed, cleaning your teeth, having a shower, you know, farting yeah. around with your car parking stuff. And the fact that that's, by the way, cognitively quite tiring. Okay, so if you're, I mean, one of the interesting questions I ask, I've got a daughter who's dyspraxic. I'm slightly dyspraxic, I think. I was never diagnosed because no one knew what it was in 1975. But I find the, it, it occurred to me that in order to start to get from my home and start 
work in Ogilvy, including everything from like train tickets to all the other shit, to parking, to paying to park, to doing this, to doing that. The number of operations I have to perform just to get from bed to boardroom, as it were, is something like 210. You know, the getting dressed, the cleaning your teeth, the wiping your ass, mm. you know, etc. Okay. You're already knackered. Now, I'm already, you know, that, that's me done, basically. You know, yeah. I, you know I, 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 I've got to remember now because mm. I've changed my jacket. I just remembered yesterday. And so the normal thing that I use as a pass to get into the office needs to be changed from one jacket pocket to another jacket pocket. Rory, have you heard of spoon theory? Um, I vaguely heard, hit, hit me with it more because I, I, some, someone told me about it a while back and I've forgotten what it is. It's essentially what you're describing. Spoon theory is um, an analogy which basically um, it refers to the amount of ability that someone has. So whether they are like extremely autistic or have a chronic illness or have crippling depression or anything that impedes their day-to-day life and activities, um, it's what they use to describe like how much of that energy or ability they have left. So something will take them you know, one spoon or two spoons or three spoons, and they have much fewer spoons than, you know, the average person does. So by the time they've, you know, gotten up, brushed their teeth, chosen an outfit, walked to the bus stop, got on the bus, etc., they'll they'll have already used up maybe like two or three spoons. Um, the average person will have only used like half a spoon. Um, so it's that sort of, you know, difference in uh, energy or ability. And it's interesting because I speak to other people who I always think are slightly like me in the workplace. And what you mentioned with spoon theory is, broadly speaking, pretty believable. Because, mm. you know, there are people, you know, non-neurotypical people, who if you give them a strategic problem, to them it's like a crossword. It's fun. Okay, it's absolutely, yeah. you know, absolutely an intriguing challenge which they enjoy and don't find actually taxing. But if you give them a load of fiddly shit to do, I mean, the the, the funny thing is, I do a lot of uh, speaking at uh, um, conferences, and it occurred to me that the the single job I would hate more than anything in the world is conference organizer. <laughs> which is you know, yeah. endless amounts of you know, endless amounts of complex detail where the failing in one dimension can lead to catastrophe. You know, mm. an enormous amount of the ratio of what you might call bureaucracy to actual accomplishment is you know painfully high. And your know, wedding planner would be a wedding planner would be my absolute nightmare. High stakes, high fiddliness, you know. Oh, same. Anything that organizes people's like schedules. I have the utmost respect for like personal assistants and yeah, office managers. Knowledge. People who book trains and planes for other people. So like no. I would I would pay to I see I just Rory want to sit in a dark room planner. and write words. Because I'm chronologically dyslexic. I can write you know, I, I don't want to portray myself as criminal. You know, I, I've written books of a hundred thousand words and I've done I do speeches to two thousand people and things like that. There's certain things I can do, okay? Uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to dates, one thing I get actually incredibly angry is when people don't put the day of the week alongside the date. A, because it's a kind of check digit, you haven't got the date wrong, but B, because truly, okay, the 4th of February means nothing to me now. I have no idea what the 4th of February is. Is it the weekend? I don't know, okay? I remember talking with the police. And I, and my, my assumption was this, right, okay? If the police ever called someone in for an interview and said, okay, what were you doing on the evening of the 17th of January 2023? Uh, my theory was that if that person answered, they were bang to rights guilty, because the only reason they'd know is that they prepared an alibi, or they were very conscious of the 17th of January, because it was the night they murdered that person, right? Yeah, okay. 100%. Now, talking to other people, it's absolutely clear that my 
I, I, there would be quite a few people unfairly arrested by this scheme because <laughs> there are people who actually answer that. Oh, that would be last Thursday. Oh, yeah. I was visiting so and so. Okay, I have. Yeah, it wouldn't I have be me. Not no sodding clue what I was doing on the seventh. I don't remember dates in significance and things like birthdays or it was this time of year when so and so died. Okay, my wife does that. You know, yeah. it was, it was, it was mm. seventeen years ago when so and so happened. I don't even know whether the bloody thing happened in the winter, the summer, or anything. And it strikes me that you know there the, are these areas where, if we're not careful in technology, we design the world for for a majority who are capable, you know, who are just date literate, and yet a sizable minority, which maybe as high as like forty, maybe a majority, to be honest. Okay, we don't actually account for we account for the advantages to the people who are already adept at this kind of thing we don't account for the the downside and uh, uh, the classic example is email okay email is the classic example of the trap what could be better it's instantaneous and it's free and it's also asynchronous okay the perfect form of communication well yes until everybody else has the same power to communicate to you at which point you effectively have an inbox an in-tray which is open to the world which you've never had before. Yeah, you're always on, aren't you? I mean, there are things that I would change about email. Oh, there's one thing you could change with email, by the way, which is the ability to turn it off for all but emergency emails. So when you go on holiday... You'll be looking into that. Okay, 90% of the time I check my email, it's because of the 1% chance there's something really important there. As a result, I probably check my email 99 times for every time that that checking was actually necessary. Mm. And yet, because we can't take the risk of ignoring an important email or losing it or being too late to respond, we are therefore trapped to plough through the window cleaners are in on Monday, you know, whatever it may be, okay, plough through all that garbage uh, with a frequency that it's simply not warranted by the importance of the content. Yeah, I recommend a book called A World Without Email by Cal Newport. Yeah, I've, I've heard book. a lot about I, I must get onto Cal Newport because uh, I, I've heard such a lot about him. I think he's my favourite author. I, I, judging by your book, I think you'd, you'd really enjoy his way of thinking as well. He thinks completely different as sort of that kind of alchemy that we mentioned. Um, just staying on, just to kind of close up, when, we, when we're talking about neurodivergency and obviously the agency landscape, I was looking at some studies and one that stuck out in 2020, a study by Creative Equals found that 18% of advertising, marketing and media employees have one or more neurodiverse traits. Now that's, it's almost one in five what country is that in? It's fifteen percent of the UK population, roughly, is neurodivergent. So that's which is that's, higher. It's I a think. higher like concentration in our industry. That's yeah, I just think. Well, just thinking about kind of. I know it covers a whole range of sort of. Uh, uh, by the by the way, I think it should be higher. Now, within reason, I, I'm not talking about people who lose the ability to function or cannot do you know, but actually the value in our industry of complementary mental outlooks is such that the reason it isn't 23% or 25%, which it probably should be, okay, is probably because, for one thing, a lot of introverts wouldn't want to go into the advertising industry to begin with, even though they would be very valuable employees under many circumstances. Mm. They would. Uh, by the way, a very interesting one, uh, people on the spectrum, within reason, again, 
okay, often make very good social scientists. And the reason for this is that the things that other people don't notice because they understand them instinctively, these people have to work out from first principles. And so the act of having to, of treating, since the act of treating your fellow man as a slightly alien species turns you into an anthropologist. That's interesting. That diversity I, I was, of thought is so important. Exactly that. I mean, my question was going to be, with these traits in the industry, does that change the way that we're creating work and the, and the way that they see work landing with different audiences? I mean, again, kind of looking back and thinking about what you wrote in the book in terms of asking stupid questions to end up with illogical solutions. I think neurodivergency helps with that because he's seen things from different it angles. It would make that... sense to have neurodivergent staff to make adverts that work amongst neurodivergent people. I think representation... Because there, there are two sides to this, of course, I think, and, and I think we miss this. There are two sides to a creative business. There's deciding what to do, okay? But there's the earlier work of expanding the possible solution space. Now, I'm not sure you want the non-neurotypical person necessarily to decide what to do. But if you want to propose 10 interesting solutions to a problem rather than two boring ones, then that work of effectively um, redefining the scope of what's possible or what might lead to a solution, uh, that strikes me as really, really interesting. Now, what you may have is an interesting phenomenon where a lot of the founders of great tech companies, I think we can say this of Zuckerberg with some confidence, okay, are not neurotypical, okay? Yeah which makes them very good at coming up with the idea in the first place and also probably helps mm. with coding ability and goodness knows what else. Does it make them brilliant custodians of those companies going forward as they grow? Discuss. I mean, no, because they've obviously found a need to hire. I mean, it's like any business. You're not just hiring um, you know, outside of your specialism to like yin-yang your own faults and fallbacks, but... Um, yeah, probably for that reason as well. There may also be a failing among non-neurotypical people in that a, one characteristic might be seeing raw intelligence as the de decisive factor in problem solving. And Bill Gates admitted that he made this mistake early in his career in that he thought any problem was simply a matter of putting enough IQ brain power on it for it to be solved, mm. okay? And people who are very high in IQ and perhaps lower in other forms of intelligence, are prone to see what they bring to the party as essentially the only component of the party. But actually, Gates made exactly this point. He said, he said there are a whole load of fields in sales, marketing, management. There are a whole load of skills where raw intelligence is actually not only not necessarily all that valuable, but maybe counterproductive. And that he suddenly realized that you need a whole group of complementary EQ and other forms of complementary intelligence to make a working uh, a working team or a working business. But it is it, it, there is you know I, I have seen it in people who basically regard the exercise of forms of intelligence other than their own as essentially you know pointless or wasteful or irrelevant. I mean, obviously, so much amazing, interesting ground covered there. And it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I think anyone listening at home will find that extremely valuable. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting me. And it's, uh, uh, it's prompted some very, very interesting thoughts, both in terms of how we're catering to the people we work with, but also how we're catering to consumers. Consumer-centric, that's the way forward, isn't it? I yeah. Think we, the more we do of that, the better. And the more we get more Zoom boxes on the street, the better as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Anyone listening, please don't copy our idea. We're going to go into business shortly after. Cheers, um, Rory. But Rory, thank you. Come back anytime. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you ever so much. 
I mean, what a treat to finally get to speak to Roy. As expected, so much covered there. Well, yeah, what what are we thinking now? I mean, I think one thing that we didn't get to touch on that, but I think it's an interesting point to make off the back of that was that point of, you know, how we've sort of started to crack it or like companies have started to crack it in physical spaces. Mm. But it's like looking at what the the social or like digital equivalent is to that. So mm-hmm. YouTube connected TV being um, one and like TikTok and it, with its various niche like communities being another. But what do you think about things like like Morrison's like sensory shopping hour, like what would the digital equivalent be of something like that? Yeah, I think a lot of it that comes down to ease of use, really. Um, when you kind of strip everything back, you know, obviously there's a lot of sort of overload on social, constant content every single, everywhere you look. Um, I think when you look at brands that have done it well, uh, Apple are a good use case, you know, in terms of even just from the packaging, you know, everything about the Apple experience from the Apple store to the packaging to absolutely what they use, you know, the, the way the phone looks, the way an iPad looks, iOS, it's so clean. Clean, yeah, I was thinking it Everyone is clean. Everyone can use it, right? It's mm. clean. And and to Rory's point about the elderly, I think, I, I don't know the stats, but I would imagine the elderly have Android-based, which would... They just don't have phones. I was looking yeah. at the elderly people in my yeah. life. They've got a Nokia brick, and even that they struggle with. So my mum has an Android, my dad has an iPhone. And Did the you say reason, your mum and dad I are d- elderly? No, no, not at all, not at all. I'm just saying in terms of I'm use cases... I'm thinking of my 90-year-old grandma. It's so much easier to use an iPhone in my head. Um, obviously, you know, I'm a different demographic, but I think for the elderly demographic, iPhones are perfect because they're very easy to use. Yeah. Granted, there's no buttons, which maybe they're more yeah. accustomed to. But going back to that sort of sensory reasoning, I think on social, we touched on it a little bit there with um, looking at Twitter, you know, alt text has finally arrived. Whether people use it or not is a different story, but, you know, that's that's a lot easier. So there's a, there's a, like a growing community of people on TikTok. You know how... Like without, like auto captions aside, people have been putting uh, like written text translations of what they're saying in video on screen. Mm. And if that's not there, you get people in the comments on TikTok more than anywhere else naturally, like not complaining about it, but just pointing out like, oh, uh, I love not being able to like understand what's being said in a video. Like for language barriers, like any like accessibility purposes, like hearing impairments, anything like that, I think it's becoming more um, expected. Yeah, one thing about Twitter as well, actually, I was thinking for threads, you know, you see people put like one out of 12 in brackets. Mm -hmm. I think that should just be baked in straight away if you've yeah. got a thread you should be able to see the amount of tweets that are in I want to know I know I love I love hearing from our listeners please tell us if you consider yourself to be neurodivergent tell me what social platforms you prefer using or think are easier to use and why and beyond platforms features also so is there something about stories that you enjoy more than feed for a reason that where it's easier to process I want the answers to those questions I think things like you know as like marketers and advertisers even though we've said it's only 15 percent of say the uk population that are declared that we know of it's probably much higher um or a little bit higher at least there are stereotypes in our heads like rain man a beautiful mind these movies that sort of categorize neurodivergence as like the extreme level of that Mm. huge spectrum whereas actually i think we should be thinking more about variation as rory touched on um then and that experimentation so whether it is just ensuring you have an option of some kind um, that people can choose what's more convenient for them. Yeah, talking about experimentation, just looking at agency functions alone, actually, there's a good argument about magic versus maths. 
So I think at the moment we're getting, this is my opinion, so, you know, feel free to disagree or agree. Um, but I feel, feel like we're getting, especially in the creative industry, bogged down in maths. So everything's been... Um, oh, is this just a new word for creative versus data? <laughs> uh, potentially, but you, you look at data and insights and everything's so rigid, right? Mm. So people feel... I think, safe in trying to find the exact answer to everything, which is killing the creativity and killing the magic. There's no room for magic anymore. And I think with, as we talked about that sort of, those neurodivergent traits, I think there's a lot a lot of different ways of thinking about things that aren't, mm. you, you can't find a solid answer. There is no, no solid answers. Well, I think like the way, I mean, I'm going to like choose our own horn now, but I think like the way that we do data and insights, for example, is like we have the analytics that comes in and then we also have the people with those creative brains that layer on those like human mm. truths and insights to make the numbers make sense. And it's like, take what you like, discard what you don't. But as Rory said, like you can't have... You can't have the neurodivergent solution being the primary one because it's not the majority, but it's presenting, say, 10 more, like, more solutions than you ordinarily would. So it's not one solution for one group of people, but it's multiple that maybe you can explore. Yeah, I think we've we've got a dose of Rory about us here because we we're talking and talking and talking, oh, which I know, is great. I know, but, but I... it's one of those episodes that calls <laughs> for it. Speaking of a dose, one thing I think is another thing to um, consider, the effects of dopamine on some people on mm. the spectrum. So people with ADHD have this thing uh, called dopamine deficiency, where it means they're more likely to chase it. They're way more susceptible to the dopamine tricks that you'll find in social media apps, like the you know refreshing feed, notifications, exactly. Exactly, the things red like is that. like a warning bank. There's, yeah, suscept more susceptible to the power of likes and clicks and shares for that reason, which is, I don't know, you'd argue you'd be able to hit them with more ads, but I think there's an ethical consideration there um, Yeah, to just be mindful of. I think if we're moving into a space where we're going to try and cater for a wide range of people, wide range of consumers, which hopefully we are, um, that there's yeah multiple touch points to consider and I think this is the start of a much bigger conversation yeah absolutely maybe we'll get Rory back for part two who knows I'll, uh, I'll leave that on with you to try and tackle Facebook on uh, ethical considerations <laughs> but uh, that's it we'll get stuck on the phone yeah but I absolutely love that episode I love Rory's way of thinking that sort of alchemy and it, you know from looking at even just like the zoom boxes and the mm -hmm. the amazon boxes uh, as references and the amount of examples he has in real life terms um such an interesting guy and hopefully you've learned a lot from that episode because i know we certainly have